0: We are going to open up to Malachi again this morning. We'll finish our study of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of the book. Malachi 3, 13, through the end of the book. That can be found on page 955 if you are using a pew Bible. Malachi 3, beginning at verse 13. Before we read God's word together, let's ask his blessing upon our hearing of it. Father in heaven, we do uh, look to you now to help us uh, in this matter of the reading and the preaching and the understanding of your word. Indeed, Lord, we do pray, as we often do, that you would open our eyes to things we've never seen, that you would open our ears to things we've never heard, that you would open our minds to things we've never understood, and that you would open our hearts to things We've never believed, and in this matter, that you would make us more and more like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Malachi 3, hear the word of the Lord. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation, we we come this morning to what our uh, not only the last words of, of Malachi, but are in fact the last words of the Old Testament. Now let me ask, how would you expect the Old Testament to end? Or how do you expect the Old Testament should end? Perhaps we'd, we'd expect it to end with the kingdom of Israel returning to the glory days, which it knew under the reigns of David and Solomon. Those were good days. It seems like that'd be an appropriate place for, for the Old Testament to end. Or, or maybe, maybe we'd expect the Old Testament to end with the coming of the Messiah. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, we read about the Messiah who is to come. Already in the Garden of Eden, God causes his people to look forward to this one who would come from the woman and who would crush the serpent's head. And it seems, doesn't it, that that'd be a fitting way for the Old Testament to end with the coming of the Messiah and with God's people under his rule living happily ever after. Or, or maybe we'd, we'd expect it to end with these Israelite people finally figuring out how to serve God faithfully. I mean, that's really a struggle for them all throughout the Old Testament. Time and time and time again, they fail to live according to God's word. Time and time and time again, they are, as Ezekiel 16.32 says, an adulterous wife and their relationship with the Lord. And so, so maybe we'd expect the Old Testament to end with this adulterous wife that is Israel finally becoming the faithful wife that God desires her to be. Well, the fact of the matter is the Old Testament doesn't end in any of those ways. There's no return to the glory days of David and Solomon. There's no Messiah. And while, as we will see in our text, there is a faithful remnant who loves God and trusts God and serves God, most of the people still haven't figured it out. And so how does the Old Testament end? Well, it ends with with a question, an answer, an encouragement, and uh, an opportunity, a question, an answer, an encouragement, and an opportunity. So first, uh, a question. Now, the question is not being asked outright. The question is simply implied by what the people of Malachi's day were saying. We see it in verses 13 and 14. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Do you see what the people of Malachi's day were saying? They were saying it's no use to serve God. There's no profit for us in serving God. It's all in vain, our serving God. Now this is, this is nothing new. This is simply uh, the culmination of all the grumbling and all the complaining we've already seen from these people throughout our study of Malachi. Once again, they are noticing how their arrogant and unbelieving neighbors appear to be better off than they do, and they're saying with Asaph in Psalm 73, surely in vain we've kept our hearts pure. Okay, this is simply a reiteration Of the problem and of the trouble we've already encountered in our study. And God here calls them out for it. God here says, these words you're speaking against me, this grumbling I'm hearing that you say it's all in vain we serve God, God says these are hard words you're speaking against me. And yet, and yet their grumbling does set before us a question at the end of the Old Testament. And the question is, is it vain to serve God? Is it? Sometimes we're tempted to believe it is, aren't we? As one pastor says, sometimes we're tempted to say serving God is useless. He doesn't really care about me or what I do. I've tried so hard to be a good person and life isn't working out for me. I've obeyed all the rules and missed out on all the fun that those who don't follow God's laws are enjoying. I've worked diligently and been honest, but I'm struggling in my classes or my career, while others who've bent the rules and cheated are doing better. I've pursued sexual purity in my relationships, but I'm still single, while others who've been less faithful have an engagement ring and a wedding date. I've read my Bible and invested myself in seeking God. Meanwhile, those who've done none of those things are ahead of me in all areas of life that really count. I'm sick and tired of it all, Lord. I'm almost ready to give up on this this religious stuff. End quote. We're, We're tempted to ask this question, aren't we? Is it vain to serve God? Is it? Is serving God getting me anywhere? That's the question set before us at the end of the Old Testament. But then there's, there's an answer. And we see the answer in chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 3. In these verses, beginning at chapter 3, verse 16, we we read about another group of people whom we have not yet met in our study of Malachi. These are people who fear the Lord. These are people who might be called the faithful remnant. Have you ever noticed that there's always a faithful remnant in the scriptures? There's always a group of people who have held fast to the Lord, who have remained faithful to the Lord. Elijah, you remember, thought he was the only one left. And the Lord had to say to Elijah, not so. There's 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. There's always a remnant. And in Malachi's day too, there was a remnant. We don't know how big this remnant was. The vibe you get here is that this remnant wasn't very big, but this remnant exists. Even in Malachi's day, there is a group of faithful believers who seemingly did not doubt God's love and did not withhold God's honor and did not divorce their wives and did not do all of these other things that the people of Malachi's day were doing. And after the question, is it vain to serve the Lord? God points us to these people. And he tells us how these people in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, these people, they came and they spoke with one another. That's what it says, right? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The implication is that these people, they gathered together. They drew strength from one another. They encouraged one another in the faith. That is, of course, what the faithful do, you know. The faithful gather together. The faithful draw strength from one another. The faithful encourage one another in the faith. This is the sort of thing the faithful do. If you're not someone who seeks out the company of the faithful, I have to wonder if you yourself are among the faithful. Right? This is what the faithful do. And God points us to these people who are speaking to one another in order that he might say loudly and clearly to us in a way that we can't miss. No, no, it is not vain to serve the Lord. Not at all. Not even close. For look at, look at what God tells us about these people who served him in Malachi's day. These are the people whom the Lord pays attention to and hears. We see that in the middle of verse 16. Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. What a blessing the faithful enjoy in this life. The faithful can always be confident that the Lord pays attention to them and the Lord hears them. As the psalmist says, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their pleas for mercy. We might contrast this with what the writer of Proverbs said, that those who have no regard for God's word, their prayers are an abomination to the Lord. Perhaps the Lord even plugs his, plugs his ears when people who have no regard for him try and speak, but not the faithful. No, the Lord hears the faithful. The Lord pays attention to the faithful. Look what else the text says about these people that fear the Lord. They are those whose names are written in his book of remembrance. Throughout scripture, we see references to to names being written in a book, which is seemingly kept in heaven. Psalm 69, 28 says, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another one was opened, which is the book of life. Okay, throughout scripture, there are more examples. That's just a couple. We see references to these, these books which are apparently kept by God and which contain the names of those who will inherit eternal life. And sometimes the book is called the Book of Life. But here in Malachi, it's called it's called the Book of Remembrance. And the point being made here in Malachi is God will not forget those who fear him. God will not forget those who serve him. The world may forget you. God will not forget you. No, God remembers those who fear him. Those who fear God have their names written in God's Book of Remembrance. Now, why does this matter? Well, verse 17 answers that question. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. God is saying here, a day is coming when I will gather my people once and for all. A day is coming when when I will dwell among my people and be my people's God like never before. And the believer, the one who fears God, can rest assured that on that day, God will remember him. God will remember her. On that day, uh, uh, God will say to you, believer, I I remember you. I remember how you how you honored me. I remember how you trusted me. I remember how you cried out to me in your distress and how you cast yourself on my mercy. I remember you, believer. Come, come and receive the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what's going to happen in the future. God's going to say, I I remember you. I remember your faithfulness. I remember how you held fast to me in that time of great distress. I remember it. Look, Look what else the text says about those who fear the Lord. It says they will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him let's just, let's just think about what's being implied here. What's being implied is that right now it's, it's often hard to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right now, as we look out on the world, it can be hard to distinguish with the naked eye and by pure reason, those who are loved by God and those who are not. I mean, what does scripture tell us? It tells us that the rain falls on the righteous and unrighteous. There is in this world a general benevolence of God, which blesses all men. And because of that, it it can be hard. It can be hard for for finite and frail creatures like us to, to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Between those whom God loves and blesses in his son and those who are under a curse because they reject his son. It could be hard. But Malachi says, a time is coming when when you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. A time is coming when you will be left with no doubt regarding those who've feared God and those who have not. Now in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Malachi tells us when we will see that distinction. And he tells us we'll see that distinction on what's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. That phrase is used in verse five. It's not used before that, but that's what's being described here, All right? But The great and awesome day in the Lord. And on this day, Malachi tells us what's going to what's going to happen to unbelievers. We see that in verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. A number of years ago, there was a, there was a forest fire uh, along I-75, uh near grayling i can't remember if it was north of grayling or south of grayling but for years you could you could ride by that section of forest and you could tell that a fire had gone through it and burned it. There were, there were trunks of trees, but those trunks were, they were charred and those trees were thinned out and the trees that remained, they had very few branches left. There was no vegetation on the trees or even on the ground around them whatsoever, all right? You could tell as you rode by, a forest fire has gone through here. That's the picture given to us in verse one, which is meant to help us understand What will become of the arrogant unbeliever? On the great and awesome day of the Lord, the arrogant unbeliever will be reduced to stubble. The arrogant unbeliever will be set ablaze, leaving them with neither root nor branch. It's a, it's a horrific picture, really. A terrifying picture. A terrifying picture that becomes even more terrifying in light of what's added to it in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 11 says this, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. You get what this means. The arrogant unbeliever will be set ablaze, but he won't be burned up. The arrogant unbeliever will be reduced to stubble, but even when he's reduced to stubble, the oven will not turn off. This judgment being spoken about here, it's an eternal judgment. We can't even wrap our minds around it. The fire up in Grayling stopped burning and now vegetation is growing again. Not so for the arrogant unbeliever. The fire burns forever and ever. And what Malachi is saying is this, you might look on the world now and in the weakness of your flesh say, the arrogant are blessed, evildoers prosper, but rest assured a time is coming when the only thing you will be able to say about the arrogant unbeliever is woe to them. Woe to them. People of God, let, let me ask, do we really believe what's written here? That the day that is coming shall set them ablaze so that it will leave them with neither root nor branch? Do we really believe this? If we do, then let us say today with Charles Spurgeon this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let no one in our life go unwarned and unprayed for. You will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, Malachi says. You will see it. When that day comes, it will be a day of great heat for the unbeliever. He tells us what that day will bring for the believer in verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act," says the Lord of hosts. So on that day uh, when the wicked are set ablaze and God's wrath is poured out upon them for their sins, the righteous, the faithful, those who fear God, they, they will have an altogether different experience. An experience which is, for some, an experience of eternal destruction will be an experience for the faithful, uh, that of healing and joy and victory. Okay, that's what's described in verses 2 and 3. This day will bring healing and joy and victory for those who feel God. Healing is mentioned first. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And joy is mentioned second. You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. Can't say I've let too many calves out of the stall after being in there for a long time, but uh, uh, I'm told that uh, when a calf is left out of the stall after being in there for some time, uh, they, they go forth with joyful exuberance. They jump and they hop and they skip. They're so excited to be free. That's, that's what's being communicated here. That's the image that on this great and awesome day of the Lord, when we're set free from these corruptible bodies and from life in this sin-cursed world, we, as God's people, we will be marked by a joyful exuberance. We will jump and skip and dance like calves. And then victory, that's what's described in verse 3 when it says, you will tread down the wicked. You will see the distinction, Malachi says. On the great and awesome day of the Lord, the the wicked will be set ablaze, but you who fear my name, you will be healed, you will be set free, you will be given victory. On that day, there will be no doubt who belongs to the Lord and who does not. On that day, there will be no doubt who is blessed and who is not. Now remember, when the prophets spoke of the coming day of the Lord, they usually speak of it as if it was one single event. As God gave them grace to sort of look into the future and to speak about what was going to happen, the prophets were unable to distinguish between the first and second comings of Christ. But we know now that that much of what they foretold takes place in two comings rather than one. And the same thing is true here in Malachi chapter 4. We know already now, don't we? The Lord has not reduced the arrogant and evildoers to stubble, has he? He has not set them ablaze. No, the arrogant, those who do evil, they go on in our world as they always have. But the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness has risen. And there's no doubt that the Son of Righteousness arose in a way that no one in Malachi's day, even Malachi himself, could have expected. Because the New Testament tells us that the Son of Righteousness arose as a baby in Bethlehem. We see this in Zechariah's prophecy. Luke chapter one, verses 76 through 79. Zechariah here is prophesying about John the Baptist. But he speaks about the Messiah in this prophecy. I'll read it for you. Luke 1, beginning at verse 76, and you, child, the child is John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." You hear what Zechariah says there? He says John's ministry will prepare people for, for the sunrise to visit from on high. We obviously know who he's talking about there. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the sunrise from on high who gives light to people sitting in darkness. And think about what happens throughout Jesus' life. People are healed, aren't they? The son of righteousness rises with healing. as people are, people are healed. People are set free, aren't they? And they go out joyful and exuberant and unable to contain themselves. People, people obtain victory as well, don't they? Victory over the powers of darkness, victory over the grave. All of these things happen in Jesus's life. And then Jesus, this one called the sunrise from on high, he, he dies on the cross for our sins. And he rises again from the dead on the third day and he ascends to heaven and he takes his seat at the right hand of God. And what has Jesus been bringing into his people's lives ever since? Well, ever since he's been bringing into his people's lives healing, joy, and victory. Haven't any one of us, any one of us here who truly loves Christ, haven't any one of us experienced those things in some measure in our souls? Healing, joy, and victory. Yes, there is an already but not yet aspect to this prophecy, as there is to many prophecies in Scripture. Okay, the Son of Righteousness who rose in Bethlehem with healing in his wings, he will rise again on that great and awesome day of the Lord when he comes with his mighty angels on the clouds and then he will bring healing and joy and victory to his people in full. He will. But even now, even here, there's glimpses in our lives of what Malachi talks about. Glimpses of healing, glimpses of joy, glimpses of victory, which is why we sing with such joy and gladness, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace! Hail the Son of Righteousness! Light and life to all he brings! risen with healing in His wings." We, we sing that with gusto because we know it. We've experienced it already now in part, and we look forward to experiencing it in full. But remember, the question was, is it vain to serve the Lord? That's the question put to us at the end of the Old Testament. Is it vain to serve the Lord? And the answer given is loudly and clearly and emphatically, no! No! Those who serve the Lord are blessed and will be blessed. Don't worry about that. But then third here, there's an encouragement. We see that in verse four. Here the Lord through Malachi points us back to the law of Moses and he says, essentially, remember it. Remember the law of Moses. Remember how I've called you to live. Remember what it looks like to serve me and to fear me. And in this, God is simply encouraging those who fear him to continue being faithful. With these words, he's saying, listen, it's not vain to serve me, so keep serving me. How do we serve him? We serve him by obeying his word, by remembering the law of Moses. Now it's true, I hope we understand this. We are not saved by our obedience to God's law. God doesn't say, obey my law and I'll save you. No, God saves us and then he gives us his law. And he says, this is how you're to to live in response to what I've done for you. This was true already in the Old Testament. When did God give his people the law? He gave his people the law after he delivered them from Egypt. Deliverance came first, the law came afterwards. The law shows God's people how to live as a delivered people. It's true in the New Testament, too. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians in depth for like six years. I haven't been here that long, but for a long time. The first three chapters are about how God has saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The last three chapters about how we live in light of this truth. We live in light of Jesus by obeying God's law. Okay, our obedience is born out of love for God and out of gratitude to God. Obedience to God's word is the way we live out our faith in God. Here at the end of Malachi, God is simply encouraging those who fear him to press on in faith. He's encouraging those who fear Him to press on in service to Him. He's encouraging those who fear Him to continue letting His Word be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. So the question, is it vain to serve God? The answer, no. The encouragement is, okay, then keep serving God. Keep serving God. Remember the law of Moses. Organize your life around God's Word. Keep serving God. Keep being faithful. And then finally in our text, there's an opportunity. I guess we could call it a warning as well. We, we see this in verses 5 and 6. God has told his people about a day that is coming when he will make a sharp distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And now he proceeds to tell his people what will proceed that day. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God says, before this day comes, this great and awesome day of the Lord, before it comes, something is going to happen. Elijah's going to come. And Elijah is going to call people to repentance. That's what's being described in verse six, with that reference to the turning of the hearts of fathers, to their children and children, to their fathers. Essentially, there we're being told that, that Elijah is going to call people to repent of their sins against the fifth commandment. Now, repenting of your sins against the fifth commandment is part of what happens in salvation, it is. Here it's set forth as a part which is meant to represent the whole of what happens in salvation. We call that a synecdoche, big word of the day. Maybe you'll see it on the gas station pump sometimes. Word of the day, synecdoche, a part of something representing the whole of something. That's what this is. When he talks about people repenting of their sins against the fifth commandment, he's just saying he'll call people to repent of their sins and to trust in in the Lord. That's what John the Baptist is going to do. I'm sorry, now I gave away who Elijah is. Anyways, we have the privilege of, of reading this in the light of the New Testament, and we know, don't we, that this prophecy about Elijah it's fulfilled in the coming of John, the Baptist. Luke, uh, Luke one verse seventeen says, "And he that is John the Baptist will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children." Okay, there's an echo right there in Luke one seventeen from the end of Malachi, and Luke is saying to us in Luke one seventeen. This is the one Malachi spoke of, the Elijah who would turn the hearts of parents and their children. Matthew 17, verse 11, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Okay, the New Testament tells us This prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist. He is the Elijah whom Malachi spoke about. But let's just consider what we're being told here at the end of Malachi. Because what we're being told is that before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, there will be an opportunity for sinners to receive mercy before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, there will be an opportunity for people who should be reduced to stubble to repent of their sins and receive God's forgiveness and be counted among those who fear God's name. Okay, what's being spoken about here at the end of the Old Testament is a time of grace that will precede the Lord's coming in judgment. Now, you're, you're, you're smart people. If Elijah has come, and judgment has not yet come, in what time are we living? We are living in the time of grace. Tomorrow is, tomorrow is Christmas. On that day, we will celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his life, his death, and his resurrection, delivers all who trust in him from the wrath to come. But even as we remember tomorrow that Christ has come, so do we recognize that Christ will come again. And when Christ comes again, the day of grace will be over. And all those who remain arrogant and all those who remain evildoers, they will be reduced to stubble and set ablaze. Let me ask, are you ready for the day of grace to be over? Have you made provision for your soul by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you fear God as those in Malachi's day did? Listen, I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you give your offering. I'm not asking if you send your kids to Sunday school or even if your kids were were baptized. I'm asking if you fear God. I'm asking if your sinful heart has been turned to Him as he's come in the person of Jesus Christ. People of God, Malachi's message is, the Lord is coming and you're not ready. My prayer is that God will help us see where this might be true about us. And he'll enable us to cast ourselves again on his mercy in Christ in order that we will be ready. Dale Rolf Davis, a great pastor, Bible expositor, one of my favorites to listen to. Uh, he used to be a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Tells the story of a revival that came to a town in Scotland in 1829. The town is Port Mahomic, uh, and, uh And the Holy Spirit moved mightily in Port Mahomeck in 1829. And many people in Port Mahomick were converted to Christ. Uh, a number of those people were young people, people who were between the ages of 18 and 30. It was really a beautiful, a beautiful time uh, in history. Well, in 1831, a neighboring town to Port Mahomick was having a communion service. They did communion a little different Uh, 200 years ago than they do today but this neighboring town was having a communion service and 60 of these young people really wanted to go and they wanted to partake in the lord's supper and so in 1831 they went over to the neighboring town and they partook of the lord's supper and the story just goes that uh, it was beautiful and there were tears and people were just filled with the Holy Spirit and people were just overwhelmed by the grace of God and the testimony of that experience uh, resounds to this day of those 60 young people going to a neighboring town, taking communion. A year later, a year later, by the end of 1833, all 60 of those young people were dead. Cholera, cholera came to Port Mahomek. But they were ready. They were ready. Are you ready? Am I ready? That's the question set before us at the end of the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your coming. Uh, through your son as a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we look forward to our Savior's coming again on the clouds in power and great glory. Help us to be ready. Help us to be repentant people, people whose hearts are continually broken and contrite and humble before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.